Julia Ebner has specialised in her research and writing in extremism, counter-extremism. Her first book, Rage, was about how Islamist and far-right extremisms fed off each other. In Going Dark, she went undercover to investigate the secret social lives of extremists, and now, in a new book, Going Mainstream, Ebner looks at how and why conspiracy theories have spread. QAnon proponents run for US Congress. Neo-fascists win elections in Europe. And celebrity influences like Ye West, formerly known as Kanye, spread dangerous myths to millions. All these are signs to Ebner that Enlightenment values are being eroded. And she suggests that we are looking what might one day be described as the digital Middle Ages. Julia Ebner joins me now. Hello. Hello. Good morning to New Zealand from London. Nice to talk to you. Um, you went undercover for this book, of course, as well. Tell me, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit riveted by incels or the group that call themselves incels, involuntary celibates. Can you tell me about those, please? Yes, um, it is quite a, I mean, first I have to say, it is, to be honest, one of the scariest extremist movements that I have infiltrated so far. It is a mostly majority violence endorsing misogynist online community. Um, it is quite a diverse uh, community, which hosts people from different age backgrounds, different demographic backgrounds, uh, and not everyone endorses violence, but the incel movement has been linked to to some acts of terrorism, including uh, two years ago, the attack in Plymouth, which was carried out in the UK, but also the 2018 Toronto van attack in Canada, as well as um, some some other attacks, including the very big uh, kind of major attack in the US carried out by Elliot Roger at the Isla Vista shootings in 2014. So it's been really, um, it has quite a history of inspiring terrorism. At the same time, you do see when, when you enter this community, there is a very sad dynamic that a lot of these people are quite young. Some of them were even minors, some of the people that I encountered there. And a lot of them are not just leaning towards violence and hatred against um, a demonized outgroup, which is mainly women, but also potentially any man um, would be an enemy, would be considered a demonized outgroup who's, who has found a romantic partner or who's found a sexual partner. Uh, but sometimes you also see that a lot of them have very suicidal fantasies and are actually also a risk to themselves. So it's quite a, yeah, it's, it's quite a shocking and, and I would say saddening environment to, to go undercover in this, in this community. Just more translation required, please. What are the pills? What's, what are the, what's black pill, red pill business? Yeah, black pill. So the incel community, incel stands for involuntary celibates. So they um, blame their frustrations for not finding a romantic or a sexual partner on women. Uh, and they they call this ideology or they say that they're black pilled. So essentially, they can they they have lost all hope in humanity. They have lost all hope in their future. And that is 
a little bit of a reference to the movie The Matrix, where you don't have the black pill, but you do have the blue pill and the red pill. And if you take the if you take the blue pill, you will continue to see the world uh, basically that is in the Matrix, of course, an illusion. Whereas if you take the red pill, you will see the truth. And this reference has been widely used by the old right, by the new right, by in general far right activists, and it has been adopted. And that's quite interesting. It has been adopted in part of the misogynist online communities. And Incel has added this new layer to it, which is the black pill, which means that, yeah, you've given up all hope in, in the world. And this, and this is also very much mirrored in the rhetoric of, of terrorists who've committed attacks based on the Incel ideology. Right. I mean, as you say, that the incels have been responsible for violent attacks, but but so too of other groups. What is it about the incels that disturbed you so? I think it is to some extent that that nihilistic philosophy and that very that that deep sense of hopelessness. It's um, in a lot of the other groups. There is a feeling that people want to be want to belong to a community. There is a very strong um, psychological effect in, for example, white supremacist movements or in jihadist groups that is called identity fusion, where people's personal identities um, become one with the group identity. So there's a very strong bonding experience, whereas among many of the incels, they still feel extremely lonely. And so they are, um, to some extent, there, there, there's a very high rate of, of also just mental mental issues and actually psychological health problems. And some of them would then, yeah, as I said, some of them would lean more towards violence against themselves and suicidal fantasies. And you even see some people sharing suicide manuals and encouraging others to commit suicide. And others would be more leaning towards encouraging attacks on women, attacks on, in general, against humanity. So there's a very strong, just... Um, yeah, a very strong hatred against humans in general. I mean, any group of people who believe, or anybody who believes, that they have nothing to lose can present a danger. But these people yes. are sad and pathetic and tragic. How would you suggest we try to bring them back to the bright side of things it's a really good question and i've it's it's a question that has kept me up at night uh, often i've actually just had a series of of quite serious threats from some incels who um who claimed that i wouldn't uh, that that i that i wouldn't uh, see them as as humans and actually the opposite is true i think we need to rehumanize them and that's also something that i make very clear in my book and that's why i try to to investigate that community a bit further and understand the motivations that are driving these sometimes really young boys, because I think it is very important to 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 very much focus on these human layers and human elements that are still present in the most extreme of extremists in in any type of uh, radicalized community, but especially with incels, I think it's really necessary to understand what are the psychological drivers that make people go down this radicalization rabbit hole. And then also, how can we offer alternatives that are actually attractive, appealing alternatives for them? I think one one solution could be, for example, to set up something that what the incel boards, the the original incel 
uh, forum that was set up in the early 2000s was actually meant to do was connect lonely people. And it was founded paradoxically. Um, it was founded by a woman called Alana. And I would love to have something that recreates that original spirit of, of incel, which was actually a positive, had a positive idea behind it, uh, connecting people who weren't able to find a romantic or sexual partner um, and enabling them to almost use it as a self-help forum rather than as something so destructive, which it has really become in recent years. Are incels conspiratorial per se, or are they just, you know, anti-feminism? There are different layers to, to their ideologies. It's also why I say that it's quite a diverse community because some of them, I mean, they all share very strong hatred towards women and misogynist ideas, but some of them also add a racist layer to that or an anti-Semitic conspiratorial mindset. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's quite interesting because you do also have people from ethnic minority backgrounds who join the incel community who would then be often seen as outsiders, but still they would be, they would be incels. They would sometimes be also accepted. They are, they're then called ethnic cells. So there is often a racist, um, yeah, a racist element to it. But in the end, people do find, find, find common ground in their, in their deep misogyny. Most people use, you write in the book who believe one conspiracy theory are willing to accept a bunch of others. Why do you think that is? Why are people so undiscriminating about their conspiracy theories? Yeah, that's a phenomenon that is pretty crazy. But research has shown, and there are, there are a few studies now on that, has shown that something like a conspiracy mentality exists. That's what psychologists call it. And once you have adopted the worldview of one conspiracy myth, you're a lot more likely to start believing in others. I guess one of the reasons is, of course, psychological. Usually conspiracy myths fulfill a psychological purpose. It could be different for, for each individual, but there's always a motivation, a psychological motivation behind it. And another one is simply ideological or what, when it comes to the narratives um, of, of conspiracy myths, they they all are very similar in in the overall pattern that they demonize an outgroup that is blamed for for something for for one's personal including for one's personal grievances um so now with the whole series of crises that we've witnessed we saw that sometimes people started to believe in one conspiracy myth and then adopted more and more because they already have such a deep distrust then in the established institutions including political institutions, but also the media, science even. And then once you've started to believe that everything is corrupt and everything is rigged and everything is is um, yeah not trustworthy, it's much easier to start believing in even crazier conspiracy myths. And then at some point, some, some people might end up believing that what QAnon uh, adherents believe, that the global elites are drinking the blood of young children to stay young and are a bunch of satanists basically um so that's that's of course the very at the very extreme end or that um that the hollywood elites are reptilians or everyone in buckingham palace is the reptile but you could argue that that's just a metaphor and that progressive liberals also believe that global elites are destroying the world not that they're reptiles but nevertheless are damaging us it's a 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And the line is is sometimes, of course, um, difficult to draw. What is still legitimate just criticism of of systems, of political systems, of also uh, capitalism, of of yeah, of of the establishment, which can of course be um, legitimate. The same is true for for COVID measures. Being in general having a skeptical mindset doesn't yet mean that people would resort to going into the very extreme. Um, yeah, the very extreme conspiracy myth communities, but it, it's it that can actually sometimes also be a gateway into uh, further radicalize in, into radicalization um, rabbit holes. But it's 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 tricky because of course there there are, there are legitimate criticisms as well, and and it's often um, yeah. I guess one what I'm trying to say is there is, I think, what we what we do call extremist, at least at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, where I work, is once people start adopting a some kind of a dehumanizing or supremacist worldview, where they believe that um that there is a demon there's a there's an outgroup and that outgroup is strongly demonized, dehumanized, and the in-group is is seen as superior to that outgroup. So very often you see when when anti-Semitic layers are added to conspiracy myths, that's usually when it when it becomes a bit dangerous, or when you have other minority communities um, being systematically demonized. Yeah, I was thinking about that in relation to your first book, Rage, which talked about how Islamist extremism and far-right extremism both kind of legitimized one another. And I'm wondering whether we're in that position now with right-wing extremism and you could call it extreme progressive liberalism, mutually demonizing and therefore driving each other to further extremes. I think to some extent that is that is certainly true in terms of the increasing polarization that we're seeing I guess the U.S. is the best example for this, where there's almost no um, no peaceful dialogue anymore between um, the left and the right, and it's it's really there is a reciprocal radicalization effect where both ends of the ideological spectrum are further radicalizing each other towards more extreme positions, and there is a demonization happening on both ends. So I think that is actually a very dangerous dynamic and. Some scholars who've researched, uh, for example, also civil wars have actually warned of that dynamic and have said they've seen, for example, Barbara Walters is a leading um, civil war researcher. And she she wrote a book about this, that she's seeing all the signs that other countries showed before um, going into a civil war, before a civil war started, that she's seeing that in the U.S. right now. And I think part of that is because of this increasing polarization which drives such a big wedge between between people on either side. Simon Cossey, who's at the University of Kent, a uh, lecturer in criminology, he said it really well, I thought, I just wanted to run this past you. He says, we've reached a curious juncture in the culture war where the most entrenched combatants on either side have come to believe that the most deranged ideas of their enemies have politically and culturally triumphed, conquering the mainstream, both bewitched by the excesses of their adversaries, have succumbed to the very derangement and loss of perspective 
of which they accuse the other side. I wondered what you made of that. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very valid observation, and it's it's very well put. I I do agree that, um, yeah, that a lot of the ideas have definitely become more mainstream that we could originally see more in the radical you know, ends of, of society. I think, I mean, my book focused a lot on what we see mostly on the far right side of the spectrum, because that's what I'm most familiar with. So I've been tracing narratives and ideas, um, extremist ideas uh, from on the far right side of the spectrum for the last seven years now. And I've slowly come to realize that actually what I used to see in the darkest corners of the internet in terms of conspiracy myths and narratives has now really leaked into public discourse and is now to some extent used some of the symbols, some of the subculture references, and even some of the vocabulary is now used by by more mainstream figures, by uh, influencers, um, but also to some extent by polit politicians. And of course, we've seen that far-right populist parties have gained ground but you could you could argue that to some extent that has also happened on on the other side of the spectrum. I think it is always in politics there is always a reciprocal effect of where one reinforces the other. Are you sure that you're not contributing to um, extremist creep, if I can put it that way? Because you know you do seem to conflate Tucker Carlson with with the the gunman that committed the dreadful terrorist attack on the Christchurch mosques. No, I definitely wouldn't conflate the two because they have very different tactics and they are, of course, entirely uh, standing for entirely different uh, approaches. But I, I do think in terms of the ideologies um, that, well, the ideologies that Tucker Carlson has given a platform to, they were definitely reflecting um, the manifesto of the Christchurch shooter, and there's just there's it, that's just a factual uh, observation. That's not not to put to equate them in any way or to conflate them. I do I do I do think that, and that's based on all the observations that I've made as part of the book, but also as part of my academic research. That mainstream figures such as Tucker Carlson, who of course has had a very big audience and still does, even now after his career at Fox News. Uh, do play a, a very strong role in normalizing and and yeah as i said and mainstreaming and potentially legitimizing ideas that can come from the very extreme fringes and that includes in this case the great replacement idea but also um also other conspiracy myths that were more related to to, to the covid uh, pandemic qanon ideas i do think giving them a platform in in and shaping them in a very positive light as tucker carson has done it uh, that that can have an impact on on the whole of society, whereas of course terrorists um, have a very different approach to bringing ideas to to the people. I mean, I would never say that someone like Tucker Carlson is, of course, not on the violent, not at all on 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 the violent side of the spectrum, but he does. He's he's an enabler or um, someone who who can mainstream some of the ideologies that we have seen. Um, on the fringes, including those that have inspired terrorist acts. Yes, I mean, I do understand, but the expression giving them a platform could mean could mean me just interviewing someone. Do you know what I mean? At what point in the spectrum of extremism does one say, 
we are not going to talk to anybody who espouses those views? It's a good question. It's the whole question around cancel culture um, versus, well, deplatforming arguments. I think there is, it's a very fine line that we need to walk because, of course, it's important to keep um, one of our highest uh, values of free speech, which is a fundamental pillar of, of every functioning democracy. But there are, there are very different approaches to free speech in Germany because of the history of Germany, for example, um, any kind of, of hate speech, and that includes conspiracy myths such as the great replacement ideology, wouldn't really be tolerated on a, on a public platform. So uh, whereas in the US, it's a lot more, I guess it's, it's a lot more uh, legitimate and it's a lot more um, that the very highest value there is free speech. So we've seen that the debate there has been happening in a very different way from, say, example, say for example, Central Europe and especially Germany. Um, it's I I I'm not sure whether I I really have a strong opinion on, for example, who exactly should should be deplatformed and who should be given uh, airtime. I do think once someone's free speech limits someone else's free speech because they feel intimidated by what is being said that is crossing a line where free speech should be should be curbed and i do i would say that hate speech is a good example of that when people can run campaigns against minority communities or against um yeah demonized outgroups who then no longer feel the courage to actually say what they want to say that means that they're being silenced and that, they're, that their free speech is also limited by what is being said. I mean, we're, we're particularly sensitive right now to the issues of transgender people and transphobia. And uh, Posey Parker, so-called Posey Parker, has just announced, I don't know whether you're familiar with her, she just announced yeah. that she is, after all, not coming to New Zealand because she can't guarantee that she will be protected from people who uh, will throw things at her because she's perceived as transphobic. That's one thing. Um, I once interviewed a woman called Kathleen Stock, who is a philosopher, um, and she focused on, you know, the abstract issues of gender identity. I've been pillarized. Pillarized? Is that a word? Pillarized. Um, for that, because I have been accused of feeding into transphobia. I, I use this not to conflate myself with any particular uh, side, but just to explore the difficulties that we face now if extremism poses such a danger. How do we avoid stoking it without censoring ourselves? It's extremely difficult. And I do agree that continued dialogue, um, including with people who might have contrarian views, is important uh, just also to avoid getting into getting further into that polarization spiral and into the, this whole culture war, which is really destructive to, to, the, to, to the stability of our societies in the end. Um, so I would say that it's it's probably necessary to sometimes put these ideas into context and say and and also just provide analysis or provide um counterparts who can really argue against them and point out what for example is upsetting to the transgender community or to the LGBTQ community in a wider sense about opinions that are um yeah that that have been voiced by 
by influencers like that who have been who have been campaigning against their rights and I think or who have been vocal uh, in their opinions. Um, so I think it's important to have that debate, but it's also important to to really make sure that the other side is very well reflected and that it's, it's being put into context in terms of also the numbers, for example, of of transgender um, people who've been really heavily impacted by hate crimes, by rising numbers of of just online hatred, but also of actual violence offline. I think that is something that is important to highlight in the context of when speaking about uh, about also uh, the, the whole trans rights issue. You ask whether it's too late to stop democracies being taken over by far-right ideologues and ideologies and conspiracy thinking. Are those two different things for you, or are they the same thing, far-right ideologies and conspiracy thinking? They are two different things. However, I do think that they're closely intertwined at the moment. I would say that uh, this can always change, and conspiracy myths uh, are always phenomena of, of of their time, but they follow certain patterns. And um, what we're seeing right now is that, especially on the far right side of the spectrum, there have been a number of of conspiracy myths that have kind of aggregate been aggregated into QAnon, which of course is a master uh, master conspiracy myth, which combines different older conspiracy myths as well as newer ones but has really attracted uh, millions of people around the world, uh, if not more. And that is something that is um, where they have actually been able to mobilize significant parts of a voting population. This is the replacement theory. Uh, this is QAnon. This is this is what started originally as the idea that the Clinton family is running, running an underground network of child abusers ah, or yeah. pedophilia networks, and which has then been been developed over over the covid pandemic to also integrate anti covid and anti vaccine ideas but also um is very much a pro trump and and even pro putin pro russia conspiracy myth it's quite interesting because they've managed to combine ideas about um about nasa about the hollywood elites about explaining that the moon landing apparently never happened and that princess diana uh, and and also integrating conspiracy myths about Princess Diana's death, about the royal family in general, but also um, about more more recent things like the Ukraine war. And and it's interesting how they've managed to in that way uh, attract people from different corners of the ideological spectrum. So there were also quite a lot of people who came to QAnon from originally left wing positions. But the conspiracy myth is, in essence, a far-right conspiracy uh, myth, and has all the all the pillar, pillars of of far-right extremism. But in in the fear of extremism, do you not worry that we risk further polarization? Or I'm returning to my point, I suppose. A a, a democracy can still be right-wing. Uh, you can still be anti-immigration and a Democrat. You can still worry about puberty blockers and not be transphobic. But we yeah. have to divide ourselves into two camps now. And we are inclined to say, no, no, if you're that, you can't be that. Yeah, I agree that that is, that is a major problem and an issue. And I would, I would love to... 
um, go back to or, or reverse this trend of where we're seeing these two very homogenous um, political blocks, as it seems to some extent, where it's not possible to even adopt one idea from the other side and still be still be accepted in your own political camp. Exactly. It has become a very tribal uh, or a very yeah very polarized um, environment where my whole the whole idea also behind my book going mainstream was to to also offer a critique of of precisely that that we have had a lot of progressive movements in the in the past few years only there has been a lot of um change towards more liberal policies and um, more in a more inclusive society i guess but for many people this has just moved too quickly and I do explain it also with that, but also with the range of, with the series of crises that we faced and with very rapid technological changes that to some extent, the radical fringes have managed to conquer what used to be the political middle. But it is very much um, a Plato year or it's very much a, yeah, an argument also to get back to a political middle ground where we can talk to each other. Um, in fact, one of the one of the questions that I asked in the beginning of the book is also when have you last spoken to someone who sits on the other side side of the political spectrum? I do think that's extremely important to keep up that dialogue and that debate, even with people who might not be of the same same ideological opinion. There is some criticism of your methods. Some people say, "Look, you can't. It's not ethical to." Um, adopt a pseudonym, pretend to be somebody else and infiltrate. It's not ethical research. What do you say? Well, where I use my my methods of deception, as I would call them in, in academic terms, um, I actually even got, uh, got ethics approval to do this, for example, for my PhD when it comes to uh, investigating really radical very extremist violent extremist communities simply because that's one one it is a safety measure but two it's also impossible to gain access into some of the most extreme communities so i think when it comes to those really radical fringe communities the service that i've been doing to the public and sometimes reporting plots that were being 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 planned in terms of actually people staging terrorist attacks people talking about using violence um is probably out is, is is it probably hopefully exceeding the harm that could be done with that i've been very careful with um protecting everyone's privacy with protecting all the users that i that i do write about or that i do uh, cover in my research so it's always a very i i always anonymize um their identities i never i would never uh yeah i i i do think that it's it's still more important to do an, an analysis of these communities and to have people, also investigative journalists, who of course do the same thing, or including also security services who monitor these groups, to have people who are watching out for the most um, potentially violent people. And also trying to understand what is driving some of these uh, group dynamics, what is driving individuals to to, in the first place, to join a community like incels or to join a neo-Nazi group. Are you are you confident that you're not glamorizing any of this? I mean, it seems to me that it's possible that a huge percentage of these people who lurk on the dark web muttering conspiracy theories are are sad bastards, as we might say. But but you're making them sound quite potent. 
Yes, I think that is no, that's completely true that many of them, that the vast majority of them will never resort to violence that in, in at least in some of the communities that we're talking about. So I would also really differentiate between the different communities that I, that I'm studying. Some of them, as you say, for example, the conspiracy myth movements like QAnon, the vast majority of them is not violent and also doesn't endorse violence. Whereas in the incel community, that picture looks slightly different. Not saying that um, here the vast majority is endorsing violence, but there there are men, there are definitely there is a higher rate of people who would um, potentially be at risk of also committing an act of violence. And uh, it is important to to understand what what the differences are. Where is where does a real threat start in terms of people actually? Be, be, being prone to violence. That's also something that I explored in my PhD, which I just uh, completed at Oxford University. I looked at the patterns that we can see in terrorist manifestos, including the Christchurch shooter, but have, but I've analyzed the manifestos, the large, uh, the high profile terrorist manifestos of the last 10 years and looked for patterns when I compared them to nonviolent extremist manifestos and also moderate political manifestos to see what, what is it that makes these people, how can we, how can we tell apart these people who might really be at risk of committing an act of violence from others who might just be either lurking in those channels or being there for, for other reasons, um, or at least not being willing to, to resort to any violent means. I, I do think that's hugely important. You say that there are four key factors which have contributed to mainstreaming of extremism. Um, crisis grievances, technological amplica- amplification, celebrity endorsement, political legitimization. I heard one of our politicians here the other day use the expression mainstream media. Do you believe that's dog whistle? I think it can be. It could also, it, in some cases, it might just be um, a mistake, an honest mistake. Uh, and of course, it is It is also, that's also the problem. It's also a, a term that has been increasingly normalized, which then also means in effect that more people are starting to use it without even thinking about it. But that's part of this normalization process. So not everyone wants to do harm by using um, that, uh, for example, a term like mainstream media. The same is true for other for other terms, like um, British politicians have now uh, used far-right dog whistles such as invasion when speaking about migration or cultural Marxism, which is very much tied to that anti-Semitic conspiracy myth. But I do assume or I do hope that they didn't really know what they were doing, that they didn't really know that this was actually really something coming from from more from the fringes, from the far right fringes, and that it was an honest mistake rather than anything else that is part of of the normalization and part of the mainstreaming process. I don't know whether and whether inequality or poverty fits into any of your key factors, but is that a factor? If people did not feel disenfranchised, uh, unable to get ahead, uh, in dead-end jobs or no job at all, gig economy, all that. Would conspiracy theories have such traction? I I agree that it's a major factor. It's a major underlying cause um, of, of, in general, of radicalization and how 
radical groups have been able to to exploit some of these grievances that are very legitimate and that are very much based on reality. So the crisis, uh, when speaking about COVID, but also the ongoing economic and living cost crisis have really exacerbated some of these phenomena, of course. I do think in some cases, because we don't really see necessarily a very strong profile of people coming from um, what we co would call really disenfranchised backgrounds or very um, strong backgrounds of, of where poverty would really be the, the right word. It's more, or at least there's, there's of course, cases uh, exist, but it's not. It's more the relative loss of status or the relative um, loss of, of, yeah, the relative, the fear of losing out in relative terms, losing what what people have built uh, in their lifetimes, losing what what they have been proud of. And that is that is, of course, increasingly a problem in times of rising inflation, in times of just harder. Um, yeah, it's it's just a harder time to to make a living and to or to even sustain one's wealth. So I I guess that has been a major factor of of anxiety and in turn also could really be exploited by a lot of extremist groups. Are you going to stay in this area, Julia? It strikes me as being a pretty unpleasant specialty. It it is rather yeah it is rather rather unpleasant. I have to say in many cases I. Do you think there are also lots of positive experiences when when actually working more on the solution side where sometimes you do see people um, coming back from the deepest rabbit holes of conspiracy myths or um, being de-radicalized? But it is true that it's also with this latest book, it is, of course, a very it's a very gloomy outlook on the world, because essentially I'm not only talking about the threat of of extremist ideologies inspiring inspiring violence as such but also the threat that they might pose to democracy and i would say that we've seen including in new zealand actually we've seen some of the the warning signs um of of this with of course in the us the us capital riots in 2021 but also in germany we had a very similar incident with the the attempted storm of the reichstag the german parliament in 2020 already before the the capital riots. And then in 2022, there were protesters, um, of course, in New Zealand as well, in front of parliament, which uh, were raising QAnon flags and crashed with police. And then in 2023, we had the far-right election deniers attacking Congress in, in Brazil. So I think we we do see a pattern that attacks or, or yeah, attacks, I would call them, on democratic institutions and processes are becoming more frequent. And I think in times like these, it is important to take a closer look at the phenomena that are driving this. And it is very true that it's also necessary to look at the root causes and people do have legitimate frustrations and do have sometimes also legitimate grievances against politics and against um, against the institutions. But it is, I think it is important to continue understanding why. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the programme. Julia Ebner whose latest book is called Going Mainstream. It's Thank you for having me. Pleasure.